So we're in a, a series at the moment going through Daniel together, lion-hearted, and looking at how he and his friends coped with life in exile in this foreign land where they couldn't be and do all the things that they wanted to be and do, uh, either as individuals or corporately together for their God. And so how does their faith cope in that situation? And, and we've been trying to apply that to our own lives in situations where it's not easy to live out this life of faith, not obvious how you follow Jesus, how you hold on to faith, what might their resilience, what might their passion, uh, what might their prayers teach us. And uh, Today we're going to come to Daniel chapter 6, we're going to read it in three different chunks, or Catherine's going to come and read it for us in, in just a moment. Uh, now one of the things we know about Daniel is that he was a man of I was going to say prayer, but we'll go with faith as well. Uh, a man of, of prayer. Daniel prayed how many times a day? God, it's going to be so much more noisier with the kids than you're in a couple of weeks' time. Uh, Daniel prays three times a day. And we're going to think about that a little bit this morning. And what I want us to do is to kind of respond to this passage, uh, to sort of approach it in a different way from just sort of studying it, but to dive into the story and then to respond. So what I've written for us today is, is three prayers uh, based on this chapter in Daniel's life. So let's hear from it together. Daniel chapter 6, uh, the first 10 verses, and Catherine's going to come and read for us. Darius the Mede decided to divide the kingdom into 120 provinces, and he appointed a high officer to rule over each province. The king also chose Daniel and two others as administrators to supervise the high officers and protect the king's interests. Daniel soon proved himself more than capable, more capable than all the other officials and high officers. Because of Daniel's great ability, the king made plans to place him over the entire empire. Then the other administrators and high officers began searching for some fault in the way that Daniel was handling government and affairs. But they couldn't find anything, not anything to criticize or condemn. He was faithful, always responsible, and completely trustworthy. So they concluded, our only chance of finding grounds to accuse him will be on the connection of rules to do with his religion. So the administrators and high officers went to the king and said, Long live King Darius. We are all in agreement, we officials, officers, high officials, advisors and governors, that the king should make a new law that will be strictly enforced. Give orders that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except you, your majesty, will be thrown to a den of lions. And now, your majesty, Issue and sign this law so that it cannot be changed, an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. So King Darius signed the law. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home and knelt down in his usual place upstairs in his room with his windows open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks and asking for God's help. Today is Mother's Day, so I've been thinking a little bit uh, about my own mum, and uh, there's a, there was a time when um, 
there was a, a church in the area where mum was living that was celebrating a huge anniversary. And as part of that, they'd redone the windows in this church, these special commemorative windows. They were very, very proud of this. The kind of windows that if I, as a Baptist minister with plain windows, went to, I'd have window envy. You know, kind of ornate and colourful and, and beautiful. And as part of the uh, celebration of that, they had a, a famous speaker speaking there. And she was addressing this group of women uh, and asking them, what kind of legacy do you want to leave? What kind of legacy do you want to leave as a person and then perhaps for some of you as a, as a wife and a mum and a grandmother, as a colleague? What kind of legacy do you want? And mum was sat there thinking about how will I be remembered and what will my legacy be? And uh, It was a bit cold where she was sat so she reached over to shut one of the windows and it, the pane of this window fell out and smashed outside one of these new ornate windows. And hopefully now I've told that story enough times that that's how my mum would be remembered, uh, as, a, as a window breaker. But there are times, aren't there, when we need a window breaker. When we need somebody who will come and, and push through the limits of what we think possible. When we need somebody who will help us to see more, to breathe more, to do more. I don't know who that's been for you, but in many, many ways that's been my mum for me pushed me and opened windows for me. I love this story of, of Daniel. I love his response to the challenge. Uh, there's this politi politicizing going on, isn't there? This political gamesmanship uh, with Darius and his advisors. And they're trying to butter him up and say, well, listen, you're in a region now. You're in a place where you've taken over from Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar had this big gold statue, and people worship that. Shouldn't you do something similar? Shouldn't you stamp your authority? And of course, there's secret ulterior motives to this, but Darius falls for it and gets swept along with it. And so this, it, this decree is issued that nobody for 30 days can pray to anybody except the king, uh, on pain of being thrown to a, land, a den of lions. And if you want to see a glimpse of Daniel's passion for God, he responds to that news by going home and praying, just as he had done before. The text even tells us he gives thanks. I mean, what's he giving thanks for? Who knows? But he found something to be grateful for. And somehow for Daniel, the fear of being fed to lions is not as great as his fear of not being able to pray. And I love the way this is described. He goes home, he gets on his knees, he opens a window, and he prays. I don't know if you've ever been in one of those situations where you've been sat talking about something and the way out of it is not clear. There's no obvious, easy solution and everyone's getting frustrated and scratching their heads or just bemused or just depleted, whatever it is. And then someone prays and it's like somebody pushed open a window and we thought there was a wall, but actually there's a way through. Do you want to be a a window-opening prayer. I wish there was a better way I could say that. It doesn't roll off the tongue. But I want to be somebody when I pray that, that pushes open windows. It tells us that he opened his window towards Jerusalem. That's a really interesting thing to do, isn't it? Why would you open a window towards Jerusalem? Now, for Daniel, the Jerusalem that he'd known is long gone. 
It's utterly destroyed. The, the temple where a lot of them heard prayer or entered into prayer or learned to pray is burnt to the ground. There's nothing left of it. But Daniel knows his prophecies. He knows the story of God. He knows that one day Jerusalem will be the place when it is all restored. Jerusalem doesn't just represent this sort of magical past that they had. It represents their hope and their future. Daniel, even in this situation, still looks for Jerusalem, still looks for that promise, and still looks for that, that hope. I'm inspired by the story of Anne Franks. I don't know if you've ever read her book. It's, we often call it the Diary of Anne Franks, but it's just originally written as the Diary of a Young Woman, a woman whose family was um, living in, in Nazi Germany at the time when they themselves were Jewish. And, their dad, Otto, worked somewhere where they had a hidden room and they could hide them. All of them hid and lived uh, in this room throughout the, the course, or nearly the course, sadly not all of it, uh, of the Second World War. And she had this amazing thing that she would do. She'd go up into the annex and sit and pray and write. And when it was safe to do so, they would unblacken one of the windows and she would just look out. She once wrote this. But I looked out of the open window too, over a large area of Amsterdam, over all the roofs and onto the horizon, which was such a pale blue that it was hard to see the dividing line. As long as this exists, I thought, and I may live to see it, this sunshine, this cloudless skies, while this lasts, I cannot be unhappy. She's a teenager. And she's writing this, living in fear, huddled in secrecy, having to be quiet for so many hours of the day. And her mum would often try and come and, and give her good advice. You know, as, as parents, how many times have we given this advice to our kids? Try and think of someone less fortunate than yourself. That for her was not good enough. It was a, in conflict to where she was finding joy and, and peace. She also wrote this, at such moments, I don't think about all the misery, but about the beauty that still remains. Daniel found beauty. He opened a window. He saw beyond his circumstances. He held a hope that, humanly speaking, by all rights, he should long have given up on. Beauty remains, she writes, in the nature, sun, and freedom, and yourself. If you just look for it, you discover yourself and God, and you will stand out. I've written a prayer that's simply called, We Pray. I want to invite you today, if any of these words resonate with where you are, perhaps just open your hands before God today. That's how Daniel would have prayed with uplifted arms. That's how Jewish men prayed. Just as a way of saying, this is where I am, God. This is my heart. Just open your hands as and when you feel it's appropriate. When the laws of our land stand around us and limit the landscape of where love might lead, we pray. When those threatened by that love in turn threaten us and use our affections against us to dance on our dreams, we pray. When we find out what people we thought of as friends really think of us and weaponize their knowledge of us to push us out of the party, we pray. When following Jesus becomes a blindfold tightrope walk and simply taking our next step takes all of our focus and faith, we pray. 
We don't engage in their tactics. We don't fight by their rules. We don't pander to panic. We don't trade with their tools. We push open a window and look to our Savior. We lift our focus and faith to his promised future. For we belong to a city without sin, shame, or scar. So we pray and we pray, for that's who we are. When words are fired freely like flaming arrows to follow us and get scorched on our souls, consuming our confidence in the flicker of their flames, we pray. When our leaders let us down and disappoint and desert us and leave our trust in the dust of their dirty deceptions, we pray. We don't obsess on the mess. We don't dirty our hands. We don't do deals with the devil. We don't deviate from this plan, push open a window, and look to a savior. We lift our focus and faith to his promised future, for we belong to a city without sin, shame, or scar. So we pray and we pray, for that's who we are. When the lions look hungry, licking their lips in lustful anticipation, and it seems that our dreams are next on the menu, we pray, we pray. When we feel like we're falling headlong into failure and drowning in darkness so deep we can't breathe, we pray, we pray. And we look to the lion who will not be tamed. We trust in his power and we stand in his name. We await the arrival of angels who treat predators like pets. With God in the pit, it's not open yet. Push open a window and look to our Savior. Lift our focus and faith to his promised future. For we belong to a city without sin, shame, or scar. So we pray and we pray. For that's who we are. Amen. But when Daniel learned that the law had been signed, he went home, knelt down as usual in his upstairs room, with its windows open towards Jerusalem. He prayed three times a day, just as he had always done, giving thanks to his God. Then the officials went together to Daniel's house and found him praying and asking for God's help. So they went straight to the king and reminded him about his law. Did you not sign a law that for the next 30 days, any person who prays to anyone, divine or human, except to you, your majesty, will be thrown into a den of lions? Yes, the king replied. That decision stands. It is an official law of the Medes and Persians that cannot be revoked. Then they told the king, that man Daniel, one of the captives from Judah, is ignoring you and your law. He still prays to his God three times a day. Hearing this, the king was deeply troubled and he tried to think of a way to save Daniel. He spent the rest of the day looking for a way to get Daniel out of this predicament. In the evening, the men went together to the king and said, Your Majesty, you know that according to the law of the Medes and Persians, no law that the king signs can be changed. 
So at last the king gave orders for Daniel to be arrested and thrown into a den of lions. The king said to him, May your God, whom you've served so faithfully, rescue you. A stone was brought and placed over the mouth of the den. The king sealed the stone with his own royal seal and the seals of his nobles so that no one could rescue Daniel. Then the king returned to his palace and spent the night fasting. He refused his usual entertainment and couldn't sleep at all that night. We had some um, family over yesterday to watch the rugby together. Yes, thank you for laughing at that. And uh, it's an odd thing, isn't it, when you gather together to watch something to see how well you're going to lose to somebody. And on the grand scale of things, I think four tries and a bonus point against France, I'll take that. We, we lost well if you're going to have to, to lose. But afterwards, uh, we were in the mood for something sweet. And so uh, I went with a couple of kids up to Asda to get some Vianetta because we know how to treat our guests in our house. Uh, and uh, when you walk into Asda at the moment, I don't know if you've been up there, you're greeted by this huge range of, of flowers, aren't you? Uh, the marketing people know Mother's Day's coming, people are going to want flowers. And it was fascinating to see people kind of wandering up and down the kind of flowers there, some people giving it an awful lot of thought, wondering, is this the right bunch? And are those the right colours? And do the flowers look like they're going to su survive? And, other people just casually grabbing one and putting it in the basket as quickly as they could. I don't know if you take long to, to pick flowers for somebody. Uh, around the corner from there is a place where you can buy cards for, for your mum. If you haven't done that yet, perhaps that'll be the first thing you do after the service today. And again, some people spend ages reading and reading and choosing. Other people, just, there's only one, really one word they're looking at, and that's the number in the price tag, and then that'll, that'll do. But I wonder especially having read this chapter this week and, and this morning, what it would be like if we chose our own words as well as we chose flowers or as well as we chose cards. Because words are powerful. Bex mentioned this earlier before, before she prayed about the power of words and what words we use to communicate. Words can build walls, can't they? Or words can build bridges. Words can break someone's spirit, or words can inspire. Some of the biggest changes in our history have come because of words. I have a dream. Words. And words are used in this story to manipulate, to manufacture a situation. And Daniel's fellow administrators are jealous of him. The king's got plans to promote him even higher again. He's one of three advisors. Perhaps we call them presidents uh, of the nation. And uh, you can see something in Daniel, these exceptional qualities. And he wants to promote him further. And they know we can't trick him or, or trap him because his lifestyle is just perfect. No, nothing we could catch him out on unless it's to do with his God. So they arranged this situation where the king agrees that nobody should pray to anybody but him because they knew that would be a problem for Daniel. It's so sly, isn't it? It's so subtle, the deception here. They, they come and say, King, all the advisors and administrators have agreed. Well, that can't be true, because Daniel would never have gone along with it. Even when they come back to the king later, what do they say to him? Daniel pays no attention to you at all. 
because of this one new rule, this one new law. Words are used here so cleverly. And so the king goes along with it. The king falls for it and signs this edict, which he's reminded a few times is in the laws of the Medes and the Persians, which cannot be revoked. It's interesting, actually, if you look at this from a historical standpoint, we can't really find anything to back that up, why the laws of Medes and Persians could be revoked. It's not written anywhere else in, in ancient literature. I'm wondering if this is just something else they're using to beat the king uh, into following their will. If 120 people are saying, if the king says it, it cannot be revoked. If you write it, we'll all have to do it. And words are put into this situation where not even Darius wants to go through with it. Not even the king is happy that Daniel has been caught praying. But he's trapped by his words. I wonder if there are some of us here today trapped by words. Somebody has said something to us. And for everything that we've heard through the course of our lives, they're the loudest just can't get past them. The lines of whatever was said or written are like bars that form a prison around us. I wonder if we've said words, heard someone. It just seems impossible now to go and fix that situation. We somehow feel bound in that moment, trapped in, in that truth. Word, words are so powerful. What's amazing here is that God's word works in such a different way. I mean, Daniel, when he prayed, must have prayed that laws like this would never have got passed. When they were passed, he must have prayed that he'd never get caught. When he was caught, he must have prayed that he wouldn't be thrown into the den of lions. And yet, he prays three times a day. Prays and he prays and he prays because he knows what God is saying, what God is wanting, what God is willing is so much more important than all these words. And so I want us to pray for a moment about our words. Overflow. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The overflow. If my words are flowing from a hidden place within, my language a living diagnosis of the state my heart is in, if it's in the overflow that my inner world is understood, my vocabulary and itinerary of all the ugly, bad, and good, then what do I see when I survey the words I say? In the wording, what is lurking that my heart has given place? The eager expressions of my ego's expectations, the cry of my conceit, the communication of my concealed cleverness, the prose of my perfectionism and pride, the accent of my anxious angst, the slang of my slander. It is the utterance of the utter fantasy that is me. And we can easily blame the vernacular on the circumstances outside of us, as if the versatility of our vocabulary has been infected by a virus. But no one else is navigating the conversation of our clamoring. Jesus points us to the problem which lies so deep within, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. The heart. And if I'm honest, I have to filter. I so often try to control the flow, but my thought life reveals the tragic truth. I'm spouting someone else's lingo. 
And I can try to flavor the dead water with a sprinkling of spiritual sounding speech, but the source will keep supplying the stench of the practice behind the preach. For you knit me together in my mother's womb, fearfully and wonderfully made, perceive my thoughts from afar, familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know just what I'm about to say. So all my promoting, politicizing, and play-acting will always fail to make the great. They say the power of the pen is mightier than the sword. Well, the daily tale my tongue is telling crafts a blade to beat them all. Building up those I like and breaking down anyone who will challenge. Singing praises to create a God and cursing those made in his image. And how does that look from heaven? To the one who sees the heart, God mute my mouth. Send my speech to solitary. Hold my lips on high alert. But God, you say no to mere punishment, preferring transformation instead. It's not just the symptoms, but the cause where your focus is firmly fixed. My mouth may speak, but it's the overflow of what's within. A muzzle on my mouth won't purge the source of all my sin. So, Lord Jesus, the living Logos, the word of the Father, the exact expression of his being, come dwell deeper in the depths of my darkness. Illuminate my illusions. Inspire my imagining. May my heart marinate in your mercy and recalibrate my reasoning with this reality. You have spoken grace over my guilty plea. And now it's your word that informs my identity. At the cross, you pronounce me perfect. Wrap me in robes of righteousness divine. You tore up the transcript of my treachery and exchanged your script for mine. You bore the consequences of unclean lips and absorbed all their angry allegations. As silent as a lamb, you were sacrificed that you might announce your invitation. God, give me ears to hear your spirit. Let this heart hunger for your voice. May I lose my taste for enticing talk and in your righteousness rejoice. Create in me a pure heart, O God, that even as you do, I may walk in your light. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing in your sight. May I preside so close to your presence that all I need is your affirmation until I'm so caught up in your passion I catch the accent of your affections. Lead me to where deep cries out to deep. May your heart flow into mine, cascading unrestrained, untainted, unfiltered, until my words are a waterfall of your life. Very early the next morning, the king got up and hurried out to the lion's den. When he got there, he called out in anguish, Daniel, servant of the living God, was your God, whom you serve so faithfully, able to rescue you from the lions? Daniel answered, long live the king. My God sent his angel to shut the lions' mouths so that they would not hurt me, for I have been found innocent in his sight, and I have not wronged you, your majesty. The king was overjoyed and ordered that Daniel be lifted from the den. Not a scratch had been found on him, for he had trusted God 
Then the king gave orders to arrest the men who had maliciously accused Daniel. He had them thrown into the lion's den, along with their wives and children. The lions leaped on them and tore them apart before they even hit the floor of the den. Then King Darius sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I decree that everyone throughout my kingdom should tremble with fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God and he will endure forever. His kingdom will never be destroyed and his rule will never end. He rescues and saves his people. He performs miraculous signs and wonders in the heavens and on earth. He has rescued Daniel from the power of the lions. So Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius and the reign of Cyrus the Persian. I wonder how many people uh, remember this video. Do you remember this one? It went viral uh, a number of years ago now. In fact, the, the two kids that are on the video are, are now adults now. But it's a video called Charlie Bit Me. And it's a video of when uh, a dad was filming two kids sat together. And for some reason, the older brother decides to put his finger near Charlie's mouth. And Charlie bites his finger. And the dad carries on filming it. And the boy screams out, ow! <laughs> How that really hurts. And then when he eventually takes his finger out of the mouth, the boy kills himself laughing. Charlie likes to bite people, uh, apparently. I don't know if you've ever been bitten, but it's a deeply unpleasant experience, the pain of it, and also the being held down by something. I'm told that they measure the strength of a bite in something called PSI. So it's pounds per square inch. And an adult can bite at something like 150 PSI. So goodness knows, I mean, if a toddler hurts that much, goodness knows how much it would hurt to get bitten by a human being. A lion's jaw can bite something down at 1,000 PSI. The thought of being bitten by a lion is petrifying. I don't know what I would do in that situation. And if you're honest, neither do you. You don't know what you would do when faced with a pack, a pit, of roaring, hungry lions. I love the words of the king here, the one person who could have saved Daniel, as Daniel is thrown in and a stone placed over and it's sealed with his own ring. May the Lord that you serve protect and rescue you, Daniel. What comforting words, I'm sure they were, uh, to Daniel in that moment. And yet Daniel's story is that God sent his angel, singular, his angel, who shut the mouths of the lions. Something about this lion, uh, this angel petrified the lions. In fact, when Daniel is lifted and rises out, there's not a scratch on him. So it's not just that they didn't eat him. They didn't, they didn't go near him at all. Because he had an angel with him. And that's so often what we forget, isn't it? That when we walk into situations of fear, and threat and challenge, the enemy is not looking at you. The angel of the Lord, we're told, encamps around those who fear him. And if we could see the authority, the power that was with us, we wouldn't be afraid either. I don't know if you noticed in this story, but there are so many parallels between this story and, and Jesus' story. 
Jesus who comes from a place that is not his home, who enters into a situation and people recognize his wisdom, his authority, his power, and he develops this, this following, but he's a threat to those who want to cling to power, especially want to cling to it by, by force. And so they want to find a way to trap him and try and come up with ways to, to, to point out what he's done wrong, and they can't find anything wrong with him. And so eventually he's arrested in the place of prayer, like Daniel was. He's tried, like Daniel was. He's unjustly judged and thrown to the lions, um, condemned to death, just like Daniel was. A stone was rolled over the entrance. It was sealed, and his enemies gloated, just like for Jesus. Then very early in the morning, are you hearing this? Very early in the morning, the stone is rolled away. Now for Jesus, of course, it's different than for Daniel. We'll come on to that in just a second, but Daniel is lifted out of this pit to the bemusement, the wonder, the bewilderment of everyone. How can he be here? How can he be alive? And he tells them the reason. He says, because I was counted innocent before God, because I trusted in him. So if you want to survive a night in a lion's pit, that's all you've got to do. Just prove to be innocent before God and trust him. Does that sound like fun? The difference between Daniel and Jesus is that Jesus did die. He didn't somehow miraculously survive crucifixion. His life left him. He breathed his last, the Bible tells us. The Romans knew this. They knew the instruments of torture and death well. And as Jesus goes to that cross, it's not for any mistakes that he's made. It's for my shame. It's for my sin. It's, it's for yours. And if we ask him to, this same Jesus can exchange his perfect record for yours. That's what we're offered. That if you ask Jesus to take your sin to the cross, it goes with him to the grave and stays there. What's interesting often is that for many of us, we, we know that, but we've got a long memory. Somebody once put it this way, we know that God has thrown our sin into the heart of the sea, but we can't help to go fishing from time to time. Really interestingly, the Bible describes the enemy of our souls, Satan, as someone who prowls around like a lion. Not the lion, not the Lion of Judah, but he's always had pretense, hasn't he? He's always desired God's place and God's throne. So he prowls around like a lion. Not a lion, but, but play-acting. He, he tries to convince us he's got more power than he's got. He tries to convince us he knows more than he does or that it's not as secure as we believe. And he whispers these things to us. He tells us these lies. It won't last this freedom that you've got. God won't love you if you keep doing this. And he brings up our past so often, doesn't he? He plays this horrible game where he will tempt you to sin. And then when you do, he'll be the first to stand there and gloat over you and remind you of it and rub your face in it. But if you let him, God wants to shut the lion's mouth. God wants to shut the lion's mouth. Until you know who you are. 
until you know that you're loved, until you know that you're free. And maybe it is that for somebody here today, they just need to know that. God did not rescue you so you could walk around with a a long face and a heavy heart thinking about how terrible it was before you were rescued. It was for freedom that Christ has set us free. Shut the lion's mouth. Shut the lion's mouth. The Bible tells us very clearly that if we died with him, we will also rise with him. Death doesn't sound like much fun, but resurrection does. I've got one more prayer for us before we gather around this table. I will rise. When I stumble in sin and trip over the traps and I'm dragged down into darkness and cannot get back, when I'm thrown to the lions and buried in threats, when fears prowl around me, a prisoner to death, Savior, you come. Jesus, you lift me, and even there in the pit, you stand right there with me. I will rise to my feet, my eyes on the prize. You defeated this darkness, and with you I will rise. When I lock eyes with the lion, and his accusations take hold, and the new life you gave me seems strange and now old, when I'm reminded of shame from back in my past, and the lie starts to linger that this freedom won't last, when I begin to make room for this con so convincing, when I'm tempted to welcome back sins you've evicted, Savior, you come, and Jesus, you lift me. Even there in the pit, you're standing right with me. I will rise to my feet, my eyes on the prize. You defeated this darkness, and with you I will rise. Not in my own strength, but Lord, by your Spirit, connect me to the flow of your power unrestricted. For you walked this road, and kept your record clean. If death is a sentence, then you can walk free. And yet you became sin, trading your place for mine, exchanging my filth for your innocence divine, so that when that day comes, when my heart and flesh fail, your arms wait to catch me. I'm not alone in the grave, for Savior you come. And Jesus, you lift me. The enemy's curse has forever been shifted. And you push open a window and call us to walk through the stone on the entrance, a stepping stone home to you. And we'll enter that city without sin, shame, or scar, pronounced perfect permanently, for that's who you are. And we'll enter that city without sin, shame, or scar. So we long for that day for that's who we are.